All right, picking back up where we left off. Dad, when did you first hear about meditation? Well, it was shortly after college. Um, in, in college, one of my roommates, Steve Fix, um, sort of got into meditation and Buddhism um, probably a senior year or shortly after graduating. And he actually stayed in, in Ithaca and lived in Ithaca for a couple of years. Um, and when I graduated, I got a job up in Niagara Falls, um, Grand Island, the island between Niagara Falls and Buffalo. Worked for Hooker Chemical. And uh, Steve called me up one day and wanted to know if he could come visit, you know, and stay a little bit. Didn't have a permanent job. So I said, sure, yeah, come on up, come on up. And he was doing meditation. So he convinced me to um, actually take a meditation uh, class in a spiritual center, a Buddhist center in Buffalo. So we went one day, like on a Saturday or a Sunday, and it was like a three-hour session, a little training. You get your first meditation, and they gave you a mantra. So um, that was Transcendental Meditation. And I probably meditated for a year or two um, regularly. Um, well, what was it about that class that seemed to... So you seemed to adopt it. Well, yes and no. After mm-hmm. doing it for about a year, I sort of stopped. And I would do it just occasionally. Um, but I read about meditation And I um, wouldn't always do transcendental meditation, but I might do like a short meditation if I was like uh, exasperated or upset or angry or, you know, something just to calm me down. Something like, you know, you're standing on a grocery line and you're just waiting and waiting and waiting and then too long a line the other lines are going faster and faster and you pick the wrong line (laughs) Meyer (laughs) time for a good meditation so how would you define meditation so meditation is trying to clear the mind Um, you know your brain works constantly it's got all these um signals from the world from your for your five senses and you're trying to decipher them and you're trying to think about other things besides what's going on right now your home life your job your children <clears throat> what are you going to do tonight we're going to have for dinner um how's my life going big things little things and our mind gets so caught up so many times that we um can't stop to smell the roses so to speak and we're just too busy to do that so meditation is kind of a uh, stop to smell the roses Mm. and more than just smell because um, that's one of the five senses that we actually don't want to 
use in meditation. We want to get rid of all the senses and try to get down to the base level of um, who we are or what is our mind um, for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of all, one so that we can control it and it doesn't control us. You know, a lot of times if you just let your brain take over, it takes you places you don't want to go and you can't figure out how to get out of there. Um, meditation is one way to um, put all that aside and just go with your mantra or your meditation technique and um, show the what the Buddhists call the monkey brain, which is the part of the brain that you can't control and is scattered and it's jumping all over the place. And sometimes it goes into weird places that you don't want to be, but you can't get it out of there and it just stays there. Um, well, meditation is a technique for saying, no, I'm not going to go there. I'm going to go back to my mantra or I'm counting breaths or, you know, there's meditation's got a lot of little tips on how to get your brain off what it wants to do and onto um, basically thinking of nothing. That's the, that's the goal of meditation, to think of nothing. Did you notice the effects of meditation immediately, and what were those? Or did it take a while? Um, immediately. I think on one good 20-minute meditation, um, the first thing I would notice is, <coughs> excuse me, is whether or not um, the meditation worked. So if you have a 20-minute meditation, and it seems like going so slowly, it's not really working. When it goes fast, it is working. And when it goes fast, that means you did clear your mind of all those little monkey brain things. And the monkey brain things have a tendency to slow down time. You know, you're, you focus on them, you focus on them, you focus on them, and you check your watch, one minute's gone by. Whereas if you're in true meditation, you can get lost in like a dream state, and the 20 minutes might go by in like a flicker, or at least maybe 10 minutes. Um, I always have carried a watch, because I'd like to peek at the time. So I have an idea, and pretty soon, you know, time was going by very fast, and I and I would feel refreshed at the end of the meditation, and that was what I would say was felt good. Would um, the meditation or the effects or the philosophy seep into your daily life in any way? I think so a little bit in terms of it would make me calmer, less angry, less frustrated. Um, I started then to have a tendency like at work if all of a sudden something went wrong or the boss said oh man we got to get this done in the next hour we need this thing I would first of all take a step back and slow down and even though it looked like we ought to just jump out and do this I would just try to settle into a planning mode of okay we got to get this done. Um, 
let's make sure we're thinking straight and not just jumping in and doing things. Um, you know, you can do a lot of planning in five minutes if you're at calm. So sometimes the best rush project starts out with a five-minute calm down. Get, don't let the monkey brain tell you what to do. Figure out a plan and then go a thousand miles an hour after you've calmed down a little bit and planned it. So before you learned about meditation, say in college when you were studying, you wouldn't necessarily do that? Right. I think the tendency then is to jump in, to immediately think, uh, you know, what do you got to do next? What do you got to do next? What do you got to do next? Start it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Do it. Um, and um, I think meditation is more of a um, step back and think about it. So you you could still go 90 miles an hour, but you're more likely to be on the right road. So you mentioned Steve is the one who introduced you to meditation. Did you ever talk with him about meditation or philosophy? Oh, yeah, we talked quite a bit because he actually lived with me for almost a month. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, uh, yeah, and he was a good friend, and uh, we haven't really stayed in touch. Mom knows him well, and one of my goals in... Um, retirement is to re-engage with some friends um, and he would be one friend um, last I read he was like publishing you know he's like a Buddhist monk by now if oh, I had to, yeah. I think he stayed in or at least he was very interested in Buddhism and it wouldn't surprise me it was helpful to have a friend when you first learned about it to kind of stick with it for the year or not necessarily uh, yeah, yeah, because he was totally dedicated to it, and he was um, very uh, into it and well-read. He was a very smart guy um, at Cornell, so I admired his intelligence and the stuff he had read. Um, so, yeah, that did help. Mm-hmm. And then have you um, passed along... Some of what you learned to other people who would inquire? Yes, hardly anybody inquires. I, you know, throw it out as ideas. You know, I threw it out to Tom and Nick. <laughs> I mentioned it to my daughters. Um, uh, Mary Alice meditates. Um, I did find, you know, you, it's, it's a sad story that when you say you can't find 20 minutes in a day, um, to meditate, but while I was working full time, I, I mean, that's one of the reasons I stopped. I just could not find a quiet time of 20 minutes to, to do to the meditation. Since retirement, um, I have been a regular meditator and it's helped and I, um, I feel a lot better. And you grew up Catholic, you had a strong Catholic family. So how do you think about Catholicism, Buddhism, religion, spirituality? Well, I'm pretty convinced that Jesus was a Buddhist. Um, Buddhism is a lot older than Christianity. Um, Buddhism 
so they asked the Dalai Lama, who's probably the head Buddhist guy, although there's no hierarchy. It's, it's not like they got a pope. Um, they asked the Dalai Lama about Buddhism, and then they first said, well, where's your church? And his answer was, in the hearts and the minds. And they said, well, what are your rules? Be kind. So he boiled Buddhism down to, it's in your heart, it's in your mind, and be kind. Which is um, pretty Christian. And I don't see any conflict between Christianity and Buddhism. Buddhism doesn't really consider itself um, like a formal religion. It's more of a spiritual, um, spiritual training and spiritual beliefs. And um, it also has an awful lot of writings from, you know, like over 2,000 years old. You know, the, the religion is probably 5,000 years old. Um, but there's a lot of ancient writings, um, very apropos um, um, not unlike the Gospels, um, and maybe even a little more spiritual than the Gospels. The Gospels were some stories, but this is more um, about spiritual training, about meditation, and about um, life and about death. One of the Buddhist great, one of the other Buddhist sayings I love is everybody's dying, but nobody's dead. Because they consider death just a transition. You know, it's like the end of one dream and the beginning of another dream. Um, and of course, they believe in, you know, reincarnation here on Earth or maybe on the moon. Or <laughs> but they believe in reincarnation, which is not unlike, although for some of their souls who have, have achieved enlightenment they don't even have to be reincarnated they just go to heaven like the Christian belief you know the Christians for somehow came up with the idea of purgatory or whatever if you aren't going to quite make it to heaven you go to purgatory and wait your turn the Buddhists just think well you'll be reincarnated back here on earth so do you believe in reincarnation? Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah, I think, you know, I've looked, at, I, I believe in an afterlife. And sometimes I think about the Christian afterlife stories and the Buddhist afterlife stories. And the Buddhist ones make a lot of sense. A, one, when I retired, I took up a hobby of reading about um, the afterlife. So uh, Deepak Chopra read wrote a great book, Life After Death, where he documented, you know, all these stories that you read about, you know, um, people remembering past lives or near-death experiences where people thought they were heading to heaven. Um, and then he also stated, you know, some of the Buddhist beliefs about the afterlife. Um, and he approached it both from a scientific standpoint documenting case studies and also um, from a religious standpoint 
I mean, basically, it, I mean, no one can prove it, and it turns out to be just a matter of belief. Um, I think one of the nice things about my Christian upbringing is it was just ingrained in me that there's an afterlife, heaven and hell. Um, so the belief has always been there. And um, it's even with the modern, modern science, I would say if you really look at modern physics, um, has more support for an afterlife than traditional Newtonian physics. I mean, they, the more they learn about physics, they find the less they know. Um, and um, it's kind of fascinating that um, a lot of physicists believe in an afterlife and believe there is a, there is another dimension. That's what you would call an afterlife, just in another dimension that we can't see or imagine because we only see the dimensions that our brain is trained to see and hear. So some people call Buddhism, or maybe everyone calls um, people who are Buddhist atheists. Do you, do you well, it's be, um, I think that arises from the fact that Buddhism, unlike Christianity, Christianity has got Jesus Christ and his father. And they, and they well, Jesus Christ was a real person. Um. And they say that's God. It's like a real person you can believe in when you're praying. You can picture him. We got pictures of him. Um, we know Jesus was a real person. Um, it gets a little confusing when they say, well, there's a trinity. There's the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Um, I would say Buddhists believe in the Holy Ghost. They don't believe there is like one single person that is God. Um, and the Holy Ghost is inside all of us all the time. And that's what the Buddhists believe. We have inside us a divine nature. And you do get glimpses of that every once in a while. You know, if we were just physical beings trying to out there for ourselves, um, we wouldn't see the charity that we see. We certainly some people don't have it showing very brightly, <laughs> but you can certainly see inside some people their divine charitable nature shows through their kindness. Um, and that's what the Buddhists believe. So, do they believe in a God? They don't believe in the Father and the Son, but they believe in the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit in Christianity, in my understanding, is this... Um, it's not a person. It's each one of us with our um, divine nature. And the Christian beliefs thinks everybody can go to heaven. The Buddhists believe everybody has the potential 
to reach, they call it nirvana, heaven. Um, so, no, in terms of, what do they say? No, I, I would not totally, I, I totally disagree. Um, um, if you're an atheist, I think, to me, that says you don't believe in any afterlife. And I guess the big distinction I'm saying is, do you believe in an afterlife? And if so, um, you know, that's a spiritual uh, belief. Did you ever talk to your parents about Buddhism or meditation? I don't think so. I'm trying to, I wouldn't have talked to my father, I don't think. I would have talked to my mother, but she, you know, she had that aneurysm early enough that I probably, you know, when I first took that meditation course, which was like 1974, I may have mentioned it. I can't remember. Seems like your mom was a deeply spiritual woman. Yeah, Her absolutely. divine nature shone brightly. Right. What was it about her that? was special so she had 10 children and she ran the household I can never remember ever well maybe one time her losing her temper or yelling mm -hmm. she might have yelled but it was a stern voice it was not out of anger so I can never she never lost her temper at any of her children. And yet we all stayed pretty much in line. Um, and she had a very calming effect on the whole house. And you can imagine easily, if you're trying to manage a house of 10 children, there could be a lot of yelling and screaming. Um, but there wasn't. And she never had a fight with my father but once when he said, what, meatloaf again? And she went and walked out of the house and went to the movies. <laughs> but she didn't yell at him. There was no fight. We were just all stunned and my father had to figure out how to serve meatloaf to ten kids. Um, so, and she was always happy and engaging. She was the eternal optimist, um, which really showed through after her aneurysm. Um, she was, you know, lived in the nursing home for about 10 years and was always happy to see me. And always gave me a big hug and always knew who I was. Always asked me how my love life was. <laughs> And I would tell her I married Mary Alice, and she gave me such a big smile because she knew Mary Alice. Anyway, she was a wonderful woman. She is a wonderful woman. Mm -hmm. A model for, you know, during World War II, she went to Washington, D.C. to work in the War Department. Um, How old was she? She had just graduated from college in like uh, 42. Went 
from St. Lawrence and went to work in Washington, D.C., you know. Had a good job, came back, got married in like 46, the year after the war. Had a baby in 47, 46, 47, 49, 51. And um, managed on a budget, on a slim budget from a attorney's budget, but very slim. You know, she did convince my father to go to law school. He was pretty happy being an assistant teacher at Hamilton College teaching public speaking, and I think he would have done that the rest of his life. But she got him to college, and... Uh, Anyway, a strong, strong woman. Later in life, she won a county uh, a commission position in a Republican district running as a Democrat. So she won elected office. Very proud of her. And she's progressive in the church. She was progressive in the church. Um, she was on the church, the church board, um, and the church, um, was looking for a new pastor and the board was interviewing the pastors or the various candidates that would come in. And at one of the meetings, my mother said, why don't we just promote sister Anne? Who was Sister Anne was working in the parish as uh, a parish helper, and that was her attitude towards uh, Catholicism. We need more women, and um, if we can't make them priests, maybe we can make them pastors. Um, Did Sister Anne get promoted? Hmm? Did Sister Anne get promoted? No, she didn't. And in fact, there's a very sad story there um, that would have broke my mother's heart. Um, so our good friend, Father Drobin, was named pastor, who married us, mm -hmm. uh, taught Mary Alice in high school. Um, and he was um, probably the best priest I've ever known. Well, somewhere along the line, Sister Anne crossed the bishop. Never know what happened there. And the bishop told Father Drobin to fire her. And he wouldn't do it. And Drobin was demoted, kicked out, sent to... Uh, Utica College to be the chaplain over at Utica College. This is like 25 years ago. Mm -hmm. And he's still over at Utica College, never given a really a pastoral responsibility. Um, and the bishop put a new guy in there. And the parish council questioned, first of all, all the rich donors to the church including the owner of Utica Club Brewery, the Mats, went to the bishop and said, you can't do this. He, 
I mean, he's the best pastor ever. You need to put him back in there. Bishop wouldn't do it. And put his own guy in there, a very conservative priest. And the parish council brings the new parish in and says, why did this happen? We want answers. And the new pastor disbanded the parish council. (laughs) Anyway, um, that's one of the problems with the Catholic Church is it's um, got an extremely conservative bent. Um, You girls were lucky. We were lucky when we got to uh, Birmingham. We found St. Columban's, which, you know, has got the reputation of being the hippie parish in Detroit. Because, you know, uh, Father Jack welcomed all, you know, divorced people, LGBT community, um, whereas a lot of the Catholic Church, you know, the Pope and the Bishop would come out with a dictate saying, you must follow this rule. Father Jack's sermon would be about following your unconscious. (laughs) on the same day the bishop was trying to Mm. promulgate a hard rule Mm -hmm. so um, and we like the parish that we're at now it's very liberal and um, once when I was thinking of leaving the Catholic Church and I I spoke to Father Drobin and he said I know you've got a lot of worries Um, it looks like the church has gone that way but think of the church as the uh, community that you meet with on Sunday in that church that you go to. Don't think about the Pope. Don't think about the Bishop. Don't think about um, the rules, the regulations. Um, Think about the parish you're in. If you don't like the parish you're in, join another parish. People who go to church, by and large, are more spiritually oriented, and there'll be a lot of nice people there. And those nice people usually pick a congregation that they feel comfortable with. So a lot of times, if you move around, you'll find the right parish that will fit your personality and spiritual beliefs. I think on that note, what a wonderful way to end. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. Okay.